0: production
1: on the Osiris Podcast Network.
0: Rock and roll has the power to change culture. And over the decades, that power attracted the forces of commerce, which always seemed to exist in an uneasy tension with art. Not every band is able to negotiate these forces. The Grateful Dead managed to do it, and some of them even lived to tell the tale. In this episode, we're going to look at how the Dead functioned as an enterprise, or maybe how they didn't function. We're thrilled to have Dr. Barry Barnes as our special guest. He's Professor Emeritus of Management at Nova Southeastern University and wrote the highly insightful book, Everything I Know About Business I Learned from the Grateful Dead. But first, I want to talk to our friend Kevin, who is subbing for Eduardo off on another adventure. Kevin, let's do this. So here we are again kevin and i because eduardo i'm starting to suspect he's actually in the cia
2: deep cover deep cover
0: (laughs) well this podcast is probably the deepest cover of all
2: yeah, I mean, he, he embedded himself in my podcast to get to this podcast, and so now it's like a double-blind cover, like, who is the real Eduardo?
0: Let's get down to business, because we are, in fact, here to talk about business, namely The Grateful Dead as a business.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the idea for this episode actually came from a listener, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized how much has changed in the music industry since The Dead first appeared on the scene 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. and. They're actually responsible for some of these changes. Yeah, yeah. I also thought it might be interesting to take a look at some of today's bands to get a sense of how they're engaging with the
2: marketplace. This is one of my favorite topics. That's
0: right. Well, I know there's been some controversy recently about so-called algorithm bands, which is essentially music that's specifically designed to play well in environments like Spotify. I saw a recent review of the band Greta Van Fleet (laughs) among other things the review condemned the band for being so easily reducible to a set of consumer data points it's engineered for the recommendation engine yeah
2: sadly that wasn't their album title but
0: (laughs) I mean in my day the recommendation engine was called that jerk at the record store and you know (laughs) as I've mentioned in previous episodes I was that jerk right right. Uh, but for me in some ways it's hard to see it as a positive development if the only way to get noticed is to sound like some other popular thing in this case another band that showed up 50 years ago led zeppelin what do you think of all that
2: i've talked a lot about this on chunky glasses the podcast and, and i've talked a lot about it with you and and I think I think we know that that's actually the case. You can call it pop music. You can call it uh, music for basics. You can Ouch. do whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but people aren't necessarily as big a, a music nerds as say you or I or other people, right? And and don't really look that hard into it.
0: Yeah, I wonder if age has something to do with it.
2: We're in our forties. You are. I'm twenty two. <laughs>
0: But yeah, I get what you're saying.
2: If you get to somebody who's in even their early 20s, uh, you got to look at like how much exposure they're going to have to somebody like Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, even, and then see like, well, they're actually missing out. And if they're not going to discover something like that, a little band like this comes along and it, it scratches what I like to call the universal itch. Okay, you know, there's something in our genome as humans that needs. A Led Zeppelin.
0: Well, that might be true, but I would argue that Led Zeppelin is still a pretty ubiquitous band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll hear them on classic rock radio a lot more than, say, The Grateful Dead. But, you know, I do think Greta Van Fleet plays to that comfort of the familiar. Yeah. You know, the kind of thing that... Even older generations seem to be powerless to resist.
2: Right, right, right.
0: (laughs) But, you know, there's the other side to the familiar as well. Finding a pubic hair in the soap dish is familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But for me, Greta Van Fleet kind of have the same squick factor. Mm -hmm. I will cop to some admiration for... The quantum level brand jacking going on here. It's way more comprehensive than, say, Oasis ripping off the Beatles.
2: I, th- I think you're right. I think it's Oasis is an interesting comparison here because Oasis faced a lot of the same criticisms. Yeah. Uh, uh, the difference right now, at least, with this band, or bands like Greta Van Fleet, is that Oasis, like when you look at their catalog, they sort of had the, the moxie to back it up. Yeah. They weren't the Beatles and stuff. But if if anybody wants to come at me and say that they do not love or respect What's the Story Morning Glory, uh, they can meet me out in the parking lot. You're going to fight over What's the Story Morning Glory? Hell fucking <laughs> yes. Champagne supernova on your ass. <laughs> I'm not going to take a punch for that record. <laughs>
0: Look, I've watched Greta Van Fleet on YouTube. I know that they're a talented band. Uh, Oasis were talented in their way, too. But Greta Van Fleet are undeniably, for their age, talented kids. Yeah, yeah. I've seen them crush a 25-minute jam. I mean, rock the hell out. Mm -hmm. But in that 25 minutes, there is not a single thing that passes for original musical thought. Moreover, I can tell you precisely which Zeppelin song or set or any given lick is copped from and i suppose you know folks could probably do that with a band like dark star orchestra too but at least GSO aren't trying to pass themselves off as original in any way. It's a goddamn tribute band. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, where is it acceptable and where is it disingenuous to build a business on a pre existing brand?
2: Um I, I think it's genius to build a business on a pre existing brand. And if if people buy it, they buy it. You know, there is the risk of diluting the marketplace with crap. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> you know, I've never heard uh Greta Van Fleet come out, for example, and say we sound nothing like Led Zeppelin. Well,
0: oh, I don't know. I've definitely heard them dodge the question in the way that's pretty uncomfortable. Well, sure. They're like, no, we actually listen to old Delta blues
2: or something. Right, right, right. <laughs> Was it as uncomfortable as their SNL performance is the question. Oh,
0: well, you know, look, these kids feel good. They They feel the power of rock, and that's great. On the other side of this are all the dead tribute bands. At this point, dead tribute bands are a cottage industry. Mm -hmm. But they're not all trying to be perfect clones. You've got Joe Russo's Almost Dead and Grateful Shred. Both bands display a certain amount of originality as players.
2: Yes, but they are cloning the vibe. And and that and that's something you know it, it's nebulous. We can't define it, but they are definitely like cloning the vibe. They're counting, like J Rad goes out and they're counting that you uh, either were at a dead show uh, or you wished you had been at a dead show
0: i'm just wondering about the actual mechanisms of this greta van fleet play originals but they totally rip off led zeppelin whereas j rad and grateful shred are doing covers but they're putting their own musical spin on them and that's the kind of thing like that those dichotomies keep me up at night that and uh and dark star from vanita oregon 1972 (laughs) but i'm asking you do you think that fans are starting to expect or even demand a greater degree of originality in the post jerry scene
2: i think a lot of times it's not really an expectation that they know they have but they know what that good feeling is and if somebody can do it then maybe they haven't questioned that they don't even know the bus is coming around the corner
0: (laughs) so you're saying it's more of an elemental thing
2: that they're chasing yeah yeah so there are people in these audiences that are definitely looking for more there are some people that aren't and and i think that's independent of the bands What's important is that, say, JRAD or Dark Star Orchestra, they've taken this tradition that the Grateful Dead sort of set up and are working within this very loose framework.
0: Well, maybe originality isn't the right word for it. Yeah. Maybe the word I'm looking for is specialness. Sure. I think Greta Van Fleet aren't necessarily a special band. They might be an entertaining band. Mm -hmm. And they might even be an exciting band, at least in terms of what they bring to the rock scene at this late hour. But again, a lot of what was special about The Grateful Dead was that they were idiosyncratic on every conceivable Level yeah, there's the whole be your own label thing and the direct-to-fan thing and the audio innovations and the rest We've talked about a lot of that already uh, on our little program But at the end of the day you might be able to borrow from those
2: various approaches but it's much harder to replicate the ethos it's harder to even wrap your head around the ethos (laughs) Totally, i think they did so much even just just look at like mail order tickets you know that's direct to fan but like that just did not exist and all of a sudden now there's a huge industry this is how fish operates this is how every jam band operates now that's based on now what like a 50 year old model getting there (laughs) and that's insane yeah to get a scope of how the dead sort of changed the business landscape at least in music And the way you could think about stuff, you really have to be able to get out to that 50,000-foot view and see how it touched all these different things. It gets into what kind of artist you want to be. I don't know what the kids in Greta Van Fleet want.
0: Sleepovers and snacks. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know.
2: But maybe they just want to rock the fuck out. Could be. But maybe... They were like, we want to rock the fuck out for like five years, go to college. How do we make more money?
0: There's a lot we don't know about that business plan. (laughs) But we are going to take a closer look at the Grateful Dead's business plan or lack thereof when Dr. Barry Barnes pops by to tell us how everything he learned about business, he learned from the Grateful Dead. Indeed. So before the doctor gets here, what do you say we do a little segment
1: The year was 1978. After taking a $5 correspondence course in ice cream making from Penn State University, a pair of hippified buddies named Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield decided to open their own shop in idyllic Burlington, Vermont. Choosing a converted gas station as their first location, the two set about building a frozen dessert empire. Around this time, the Grateful Dead performed an epic concert beneath the Great Pyramid, which, come to think of it, looks a bit like an inverted ice cream cone. By the early 1980s, Ben & Jerry's ice cream was being packed in pints and distributed by Cohen himself from the back of his VW wagon. Demand was such that in 1984, the company established a Vermont-only public stock offering to raise money for a new manufacturing plant. The increase in production capacity allowed Ben & Jerry to bring their sweet treats to even more ice cream lovers, including many deadheads. Two such fans from Portland, Maine made a suggestion for a flavor they called Cherry Garcia. But there was one little problem. Ben & Jerry's hadn't bothered to check in with the ice cream's namesake. As it turns out, Garcia was cool with it. At least they're not naming a motor oil after me, man, he said. Besides, it's good ice cream. Cherry Garcia was an immediate sensation and has remained in production since it first hit shelves in 1987. In the years to follow, Ben & Jerry's would help to define what it means to be a conscientious corporation, supporting a variety of causes, including the Children's Defense Fund. In 2000, Cohen and Greenfield sold the company to the multinational corporation Unilever. As part of the acquisition terms, an independent board of directors was created to preserve Ben & Jerry's social mission and brand integrity. In other words, that old hippie spirit.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty reluctant to talk over Jerry Garcia, but I'm also super excited to welcome our next guest, Dr. Barry Barnes, Professor Emeritus of Management at Nova Southeastern University and the author of Everything I Know About Business, I Learned from the Grateful Dead. He's also got a new book called The Grateful Dead's 100 Essential Songs, and you can visit his websites for information about both titles, the deadbiz.com and that's biz with a Z for everything I know and 100 essential grateful dead songs dot com for 100 songs and those are the numerals one zero zero. so Barry one of the things that I admire about the grateful dead as an outsider is that if there wasn't infrastructure to accomplish a goal if that infrastructure was lacking or even non-existent They just straight up create it. Yep, sure did. Do you think that's a common trait in successful businesses?
3: Well, it should be. I mean, that's the entrepreneurial spirit, and that's, in retrospect, what this book was all about. This is really a handbook for entrepreneurs. Right. Um, the lessons I don't think really apply so easily to Fortune 500 companies because of the rigidity and the hierarchical structure and that sort of thing. And
0: uh, But you're also familiar with a pretty broad spectrum of businesses. Yeah,
3: I spent 20 years in corporate America, starting with IBM, ended up with John Deere. It was quite a learning experience in the mid to late 80s. Uh, I decided it was time to do something different, and uh, that's what I quit my job, went back to school. and I learned a lot about business yeah. and my, my real goal was a goal to truly, really try to understand the entrepreneurial spirit of the Grateful Dead. That was what my goal was, was to write a dissertation or to, to do research on the Grateful Dead. Uh, and that didn't happen uh, because at a particular time, I knew Dennis McNally uh, virtually. Uh, I helped promote uh, the Grateful Dead Hour on a community radio station in kansas city uh we, we would talk to mcnally occasionally and
0: because he was working publicity at that's that
3: exactly time. right yeah, yeah he was the publicist for the grateful dead uh and and so when i when i started work on the phd i decided i would call him to see if i could do research on the dead so i called in but i didn't i didn't have a clear research question in my mind all i knew was that i wanted to research the dead and understand Uh, From an organizational standpoint, not a financial one, but an organizational Mm -hmm. standpoint, leadership and uh, teamwork and those kinds of things, that's what my interest was, uh, the entrepreneurial side of things. How did they make decisions and so forth? Uh, So I called him up and I chatted with him. And since he had a PhD himself, I thought he'd probably understand. But when I said I was getting a PhD in business, he Uh he assumed, I believe, that... um, that meant that I wanted to look at financials, and I said, "No, no, no." You know, I tried to explain yeah. no, that's not what I yeah. was interested in. But so he said, "No, we don't. We're privately held. We don't want anybody coming in and looking at us." So, so that blew that away. But right. but at the same time, I continued to uh, interview folks that that I could get in contact with. David Gans is a longtime friend, and I sure. he'd, he'd point me to folks and so forth. So anyway, I, did, I continued to do that and and use the. Theories of business that I was studying there and, and worked through as the PhD and uh, build a framework then for what I thought the Grateful Dead were doing and how those business theories would apply and how I could uh, illuminate those lessons and those theories practically with the Grateful Dead, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. And by then you were already well familiar with Grateful Dead culture. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you became a deadhead and when you first got that inkling that there was something connecting the world of business and the Grateful Dead organization?
3: So let's see. Um, I, I guess I first became familiar with the Ravel in 1968. I bought a, not an eight track tape, but a four track tape, which preceded eight tracks. And, nice. uh, I listened to their very first album and I, I didn't care for it at all. And I it <laughs> away sort of, uh, and I, and I, when I opened a record store in 1973, uh, made acquaintance with a young man who was running a golf shop nearby. And he Mm -hmm. was a huge deadhead. And and he convinced me that I needed to be listened to this a lot more than I had. And uh, I became immersed in that. He took me to my first concert on June 16th, 1974 in Des
0: Moines, Iowa. Amazing. uh, At
3: the Wall of Sound, which is... A fine example of of them creating something what which didn't exist before. No uh, doubt. But anyway, so yeah. so I, I I still didn't quite get it, as they say in Deadhead circles. Uh, <laughs> it took me a few more years, but I continued to listen to uh, everything that I could on the Grateful Dead. Certainly, I listened to Europe '72, since that was one of the uh, a bestseller in my record store at the time. Oh yes, as well as all their other releases. And one of the things that really impressed me uh, that that struck me. And stayed with me in terms of business. Then was that the Grateful Dead uh, had a record salesman who came and called on me uh, sure. in 1974, and no other record company, one with one exception, called on me because I was a small, you know, single record store. Uh, yes. So I was very impressed with the fact that they would take the time. The guy took me out to lunch, gave me some T-shirts and posters and all that kind of stuff. So it really stuck with me that these guys, you know, a rock and roll band, they were selling their own records because they had just created their own record company at that particular That's time right. and they were out promoting it. So another fine example of entrepreneurship within the Grateful Dead. So six guys in a band, you know, and they're doing this kind of business stuff, building this incredible sound system and calling on record stores. And so I was pretty dazzled by that. It stuck with me and, uh, uh, well, it gets me
0: thinking yes. about you know one of the other uh, things that you notice immediately about the Grateful Dead is loyalty, and it's not just brand loyalty with the fans, although. Any business, I think, would kill to have that kind of brand loyalty. But they also had loyalty within the organization, people who were deeply committed to the mission. Yeah. What do you think it is about the Dead's approach that inspired folks to devote their lives to not just following the band around, but you know, moving the wall of sound from town to town or calling up independent record stores?
3: Yep. I, it really comes down to Jerry Garcia. I'm sorry, but that's it's that simple. Yeah, uh, Jerry had the most magnetic personality of anybody uh that I'm familiar with, It's what that's what caused the fans to become lifelong fans. And also, I, I can't even imagine what it might have been like to have gone to work and Jerry Garcia is, quote, the boss, unquote, which <laughs> he, he certainly would never have said he was. Yeah. He never saw himself in those terms. And I think his humility and his magnetic personality and his musical genius, his whole personality, every story I've ever read, everybody I've ever talked to about him said that if he walked in a room... Mm-hmm. You didn't have to know who it was. You didn't even have to know that anybody walked in the room. It's just that you turned around. I mean, this mm-hmm. Strom Thurmond in the Senate dining room.
0: That's right. Same
3: thing. You know, I mean, it just had this incredible personality. It was Buddha like it for me. and uh, Yeah, for uh, sure. What can I say? I don't know how else to describe it. So I, I think that, that Jerry, in, in fact, I mean, it, it should be clear that when Garcia died, then that was the end of everything because. The remaining musicians couldn't get along well enough to continue That's right. the journey. So,
0: yeah, was... he he really was able to tie it all together through the power of his personality, his creativity, his charisma. Correct. I, I noticed, too, that he seemed to be able to inspire others to be creative in how they fulfilled their functions within the organization. You know, and again, and that could be somebody on the crew or a bandmate. Uh, do you see that kind of employee empowerment as a component of other businesses that have achieved some success?
3: Sure. I think that uh, Steve Jobs uh, certainly inspires that sort of, you either hate him or love him, and you may do both at the same time. I don't think yeah. anybody hated Jerry ever. Uh, right. so, so there was a difference in the personality there. But yes, uh, this is what great entrepreneurs do, is they, they are so passionate about the vision that they have of where they want to take this this product or service that they've yeah. convinced everybody they can share. I mean, they can feel that enthusiasm and it becomes, they can make part them their, see it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Right. Make them see it now that vision Garcia definitely had, but he wasn't really keen on decision-making and the dead organization kind of reflects that because they had a flat hierarchy. Yes. I remember coming across a quote from Garcia where the band would evaluate all these different proposals against uh, what they'd done historically, but Garcia had another factor in his evaluation and that was can we do this while we're reasonably high <laughs> absolutely it's all about fun yeah and who, who wants to go to work
3: right when, when i quit my job at john deere in 1989 january 20th i remember vividly when i walked out the door i said i will never have to work again mm-hmm. i want to have fun just right. like the dead did right and uh, you know what what kind of a great business model is that i mean Gee whiz, I want to go have fun today. Okay. Oh, that sounds beautiful. That's what we do. And if we can get high at the same time, not a problem for me. <laughs> That's and right. look where we are today in in 2019 with how many states now with the uh, legal pot. But
0: right. You know, some of the, the dead's business ideas worked amazingly well, considering even the limitations of the era. I'm thinking about the newsletter, the sure. direct tink- ticketing and stuff. Yep. Other ideas may have been a bit too far ahead of their time. Uh, We talked about the record label, that wasn't sustainable, even if they didn't go with the original idea of distribution via ice cream truck. Of course. (laughs) And the wall of sound, you know, that was a glorious albatross. Absolutely. it seems like they weren't afraid to fail. No. Is failure the handmaiden of innovation?
3: Yes, I think it is. I think you have to learn from your mistakes. And, and in fact, it's, it's, it's better to make a mistake and then correct that mistake. That's where you really learn. Sure. If you get it right the first time, eh, I don't know, you're not going to be as, as well off as if you've made that mistake, fallen down, gotten up and said, oh, okay, I, I have to be able to do this in order to balance myself. And the same well, thing When you get too business.
0: comfortable, yes, you know, that's yes, when correct. danger is at your door in the Robert Hunter part. Yeah, absolutely
3: correct. Yes, indeed. Success is a dangerous place to be.
0: I want to take a minute to ponder innovation versus sustainability. Sure. You know, they were always game to try new things, but didn't always have a plan to keep them going. And yet the band itself managed to keep trucking 30 years yes. in the initial run, and and they have one hell of an aftermarket. They certainly do.
3: Right? I'm doing some research on that right now, as a matter of fact. So. Oh,
0: excellent. Well, talk a little bit more about that. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about the Grateful Dead enterprise as it exists today.
3: I, I just was looking yesterday to, to see the number of official Grateful Dead releases since 1995 when the band broke up, and that was the end of them. And, and I've, I haven't have counted them yet, but it's it's... So it's several hundred albums wow. that have been released for heaven's sake. No band that I know of has even released that many albums, let alone right. after the band has been surviving. So you can look at Elvis, you can look at anybody and nobody has released that many albums. This is just, you know, all their live recordings. So yeah,
0: there's also merch but, and licensing. Yes,
3: yes, absolutely. The merchandise continues to be strong. Uh, the number of books that are published about the grateful dead continues mm-hmm. at an amazing pace. Um, uh, it's just overwhelming. Plus, uh, let's see, there's at least 300 cover bands. I think that's a low number uh, <laughs> on the Grateful Dead around the country. I'm, I'm doing an inventory on that right now as well. Wow. It's this, they, what they did, in my opinion, Casey, is they created this voracious community that understands the live music experience uh, it's all based on improvisation, which mm-hmm. is the approach that the dead took to their business as well as their lives and their music. It's it's being there in the concert because it vibrates, it resonates, it gets you up and makes you shake your bones and move around and dance. Uh, and, and it's just this... Hard to satiate uh, group of people who want more of this, and it doesn't seem to make any difference how old you are. That's right. I'll be 75 next week, and uh, I'm ready for my next concert so I can get up and dance. And <laughs> That's you beautiful. can be uh, 19, you can be 13, or, or less, and uh, yeah. it appeals to, to folks.
0: Towards the end of their run, it might have been harder to improvise in the business just because they had. An awful lot of overhead they were paying way above market rates for crew and front office and they needed to keep touring to make it all work absolutely and arguably that killed the golden goose and I guess in this case that goose is Jerry Garcia do you have any thoughts about um, you know what the band might have done differently
3: well how do you replace Buddha Uh, yeah I mean it's it's not possible but clearly uh, you, you have to be able to get along, and I think, forgive me for pointing fingers, but it seems that Phil Lesh is probably the uh, the one who was the thorn in the side, if you will. Of seems like uh, yeah of, of for for various reasons, and that's not to say that he's a bad guy because he's not; he's a genius, and I'm I'm impressed that he and Bob Weir get along so well and can continue to play together occasionally. Uh, uh, somehow or other, Weir, however, seems to have found. What it takes and perhaps that's because of john mayer
0: right yeah uh,
3: certainly rat dog his his band before was was getting to that point where he was drawing and and being able to with kimmick as his lead guitar player sure uh, yeah. to create that sort of a vibe but somehow or other, dead and company uh in in the fall of 2015 seemed to find the magic bullet somehow or other.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it took a while for Weir to get back to the repertoire. Um, yes. When he first went out with Rat Dog, he wasn't playing dead material. I think he did his grieving on the road and needed to be out there working, but also wanted to create some space between himself and the behemoth. I, I,
3: absolutely. It's understandable. Uh, and he still does that with his Blue Mountain album and, and that sort of thing, right. and that's fine, as he should. Jerry certainly did the same sort of things with yeah. with his music over the years. So,
0: One thing I think that might have kept the Grateful Dead afloat for as long as they lasted, was they had a moral compass. Well, you know, maybe moral is the wrong word, but it's more like what John Perry Barlow referred to as an enlightened sense of the common good, to get back to the the Buddha aspect of this. Uh, i got to ask you, do you think there's room for that kind of outlook in today's zero-sum, vertically integrated corporate world?
3: Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's still the (laughs) counterculture. I hope so. There's still this, this voracious animal of the grateful dead community and it's broader than that that's and it, true and i think moral compass" is a, is a fine term to use as barlow was so adept at using so many words in so many cases <laughs> yeah um, uh, just take a look at the uh, introduction to my book there you know he wrote yeah. some beautiful things i was amazed at that so uh. but yes i think uh, there you know the pendulum constantly swings and right. we are this ridiculous zero-sum game right now Uh, in DC. I'm sorry that you have to live there, but
0: uh, you chose it. (laughs) Yeah, if the thunder don't get you, the shutdown will. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. But you think there's something to this idea of an enlightened business culture?
3: Yes, I think that there is, there's absolutely room for this. I think especially the millennials are going to insist and demand that there's a, a, a swing back to some Better moral compass than what we have. Right I have
0: now. that sense as well, and I and I hope it comes to pass. Yep. Um, I think about the dead though and laugh because you know we can obviously find all these interesting areas where we can zero in on their business and see the commonalities with other uh, business philosophies. Yes. But they didn't really want to be a business, and at times no. they even seemed hostile to the idea. Uh, they certainly gave Warner Brothers oh, a boy. hard time. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but they also had a curiosity about everything, which meant they could hang with folks from the business world who shared that fundamental sense of interest. Right. Uh, would you say that maybe even as much as a desire to make tons of money, successful entrepreneurs are motivated by a kind of curiosity?
3: Oh, I think curiosity is the thing. Uh, whatever it is, there's this driving force for an entrepreneur. They have this idea uh, and and they, they can't. If you're a serious entrepreneur, it's not the money. It's never the money. It's all about mm-hmm. the vision that you have This of, of creating this new thing, whatever it is, a product or a service or whatever it might be. And right. and you can't not go after it. Uh, it's sort of like my book, honestly. That was something that I had to do. It took me 25 years to write that book. Yeah. But I knew that I had to do it. I had to quit my job. I had to go back to school. I had to earn a PhD in yeah. order to learn the language of business, uh, so that I could put this what they did in this framework of, of business.
0: And you actually broke ground there too, yes. right? I mean, this was the first time that that uh, anyone had taking the time to synthesize all of these disparate activities and recognize, you know, those commonalities and articulate them. What's
3: really surprised me, Casey, is the book was published seven years ago. Uh-huh. And I'm suddenly, I don't know what's going on. But in the last year, in 2018, uh, and now into 2019, I've had more interest from so many different people yeah. uh, making presentations, uh, doing podcasts, doing blogs, all sorts of things. That's great. Uh is suddenly a reemergence. So I'm flattered and delighted and, and thrilled and happy, of course, to, to talk about these ideas. because and, and I like the way you put that. So uh, thank you.
0: You're welcome. We had a uh, a fan of our show write to us and ask if we were going to do an episode focusing on the Grateful Dead's business. And we touched on you know some of the DIY approaches that they employed in a different episode about punk. Yeah. But we didn't do a deep dive. So when that request came up, I knew immediately who to call because cool. I had your book. <laughs> so. Cool.
3: Well, and, <laughs> and you're on SiriusXM, and there's the channel there, and I've been on, uh, right. on the Grateful Dead channel several times recently, in fact. So. That's
0: great. Channel 23. It all fits together. Yes, it does. So I was thinking some businesses are able to pivot, other businesses are not. Take Kodak versus Netflix, for example. What a shame. Netflix was once a mail-order DVD rental company and is now an original content-generating streaming platform. Absolutely. Uh, In your book, uh, you've talked uh, about strategic improvisation, and you mentioned it a little here already. To me, that means evolving while consistently delivering value. How did the Grateful Dead exemplify that trait?
3: Because of their improvisational, musical approach, and because it was, co- it was all about listening there, you can't collectively improvise, which is what The Grateful Dead was all about, musically and organizationally. You have to pay attention to other people. You have to listen to them so that you don't step on their toes, don't play the play over them, that you're fitting in where there's a space for you to do that while they're doing that as mm-hmm. well. And not only that, but everybody is leading at the same time. Mm-hmm. This is what's really unique to me about The Grateful Dead, is it's like Dixieland, as the David Cross would say. Uh, is there a, a rock and roll Dixieland band? Because everybody is leading at the same time. Mm-hmm. And my experience studying The Grateful Dead, particularly speaking with Alan Trist, who was Garcia is one of his oldest friends, starting in 1960, uh, and and having a near-death experience together in a car accident. Uh, so, so when I finally. Uh, got in touch with Trist as I was finalizing the book uh, he confirmed to me the same thing that I had supposed which was that the organizational was in fact improvisational meaning that they were listening to each other and you you mentioned earlier that Garcia you know Mm -hmm. inspired everybody to do the best that they possibly could better than they thought they could because he knew they could and and uh Uh, So, everything that the organization did business wise, everybody was at their best. They were all leading and and going into new areas as they did with the record company, as they did with their ticket service, as they did uh, with the wall of sound, as they did with practically everything, whether it was a success or failure. And every one of those failures, they learned something that that they could then apply in a new way. With the record company, what they did, you know, they lost a a pile of money, but they certainly knew about business now. They certainly knew how or what it was involved in making a record uh, the same thing with the Wall of Sound they yeah. couldn't they couldn't afford to carry it around anymore but they certainly knew what it took to make a fine sound system
0: and along the way they pioneered strategies that other folks would take up and uh, further refine they also invited their audience into this too and I wanted to take a minute to talk about taping and tapers as the original viral marketing culture you know that world as well as anyone uh, both as a taper and someone who's absorbed the scene and the community for all these years yes it seems that taping culture was responsible for for perpetuating the band's legacy right up through the internet age, I think it was uh, Barlow
3: again had a fine comment about the, the taping and the fact that it was the best best business decision we never made <laughs> uh, because uh, uh, because of the uniqueness of each and every concert performance of the Grateful Dead of the twenty three hundred and sixteen of them that mm-hmm. we know about anyway, uh, there was practically every one of them was recorded with with a very it's few exceptions uh, and. It was either officially recorded by their Sandman uh, Stanley mm-hmm, Bear, Owsley yep. uh, uh, Bear, uh, who helped create the Wall of Sound, uh, and was also the master of, of keeping them supplied with LSD for a number of years, uh, and happy.
0: <laughs> he was the bank, he was the chemist, and he was the sound man. There you go. <laughs> and the first archivist. Yep,
3: absolutely. The first archivist, in fact, yes. Uh, and so because of this uniqueness of their performances, fans began mm-hmm. to record. Recording technology was in its infancy then, but people managed to do it anyway even as they were lugging around there's very large machines to record i was one of those guys uh, myself but i had uh, by that time that i got started which was in the first one i recorded was in 77 and i recorded about 189 shows myself so you've seen a
0: good portion uh, of that taping community
3: i have yes indeed it was the most fun i've ever had and continues to be fun i i every concert that i go to regardless of what it is or where it is i record it uh, and i don't sell it i don't give you know i share it if somebody wants to listen to it but it's for my own satisfaction and uh, i want to hear it again
0: even if you're not selling it you're contributing to the evolution of the overall Absolutely. culture and brand identity and that interactivity was uh, pretty much unheard of in the music business of the time but it anticipates the internet where customer dialogue is a given and innovation can be crowdsourced or at least crowd inspired Yes,
3: this whole idea of sharing and trading. In fact, when when the Dead finally officially uh, said it was okay to tape and they began to create a taper section and have taper tickets, Uh, this was in '84, I think. Before that, people were coming to the shows and recording them, just as I did. And on the taper tickets, then it would said for home use only, for non-commercial home use only. That's what the tickets said. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could record it, you could share it, you could give it away, you could do whatever you wanted with it as long as you didn't sell it. Uh, And this is what the the internet is today. It's fine to download it. In fact, you can listen to, you can stream on archive.org. Soundboards of the Grateful Dead, yep. but you can't download them. Right? Okay, you can download the audience recordings, but not the soundboards. Right? That's intellectual property. You know, you know about copyrights, so uh.
0: that hybrid model was way ahead of its time, um, for sure. The band itself, some members anyway, were early internet adopters. Yes, I read an interview with Jerry where he was talking about peeking into the online communities that existed at that time, like the Well and other BBS boards, and that was from the early '90s. Uh, I also there's a subset of deadheads who actually helped build web 2.0. I'm not sure that all of them are thrilled with where things ended up. Uh, Yes. Uh, Yes. You know, now that the Internet has uh, well matured isn't the right word for it. That's for sure. But it's not a new thing anymore. We're still sorting out the economic, social and political impacts clearly. But do you think the dead culture still has something to teach us about how we interact with each other in these environments?
3: That's a great question. I, I hope it does. Um, uh, having seen Dead and Company a couple of times myself now, and, and looking forward to seeing them this summer, uh, there is this remarkable sense of community that uh, is is certainly missing in the broader population. I would say, right? Um, and I hope that. That catches on, and, and I, it's it's certainly affected John Mayer, uh, clearly, and yeah. changed his tune mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being a pop star, and now preferring it seems to be part of this whole Grateful Dead phenomenon. And he's he's on record as saying this will always be a part of my life. I mm-hmm. see myself doing this forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, it's infectious when you catch it, uh, and wouldn't it be nice uh, to? It reminds me of a poster that's uh, an old woman shaking her finger saying, when the Grateful Dead are playing, you shut the fuck up. And uh, that's, that's exactly what this is all about. It's, you know, you're there to experience this music, to, to let the music take you on this remarkable ride wherever it may go. Right. And even the musicians don't know where it's going to go exactly. Right. Uh, and that's kind of like life. We don't know where it's going to go, but we're all in this thing together. And let's have a good time. Let's have fun while we're doing it. Uh, Sometimes it'll be exciting. Sometimes it'll be quiet. Sometimes it'll be raucous. Sometimes it'll be inharmonious. But we're all here together to share it and feel good about it. So I I think it's a great ethos.
0: The mindset is one of the journey itself being the destination, which is a little bit different than when I talk to, say, younger entrepreneurs. The idea is to get to the finish line, to have the exit, to achieve scale. Yes. uh, Yes. Of course, scale is something that a lot of businesses actually struggle with. Yes. It's very Always. difficult, as it turns out, to satisfy demand and expectation. Correct. Even the dead struggled with scale and meeting demand after they had their hit with Touch of Gray.
3: It's challenging. Okay. You, you pointed it out quite well, Casey. Uh, scale is, is dangerous mm-hmm. because you can't stay in touch with everybody easily. Right. Uh, there's this challenge in how many people can be in a group at the same time and be effective at it uh the grateful dead certainly challenged that with their band meetings because they use consensus decision making it's a sure. very slow process yeah. everybody has to listen everybody has to have a, a voice in it everybody has to speak and everybody has to agree to the final decision uh it may not be my decision but i've heard everybody else and this makes sense and i will support it that's what consensus is sure. that's what the dead did at the same time, it's uh, uh, it's very difficult to have a Fortune 500 company where everybody can speak to everybody and be heard, and this is the challenge. One one steel company was very successful at that, uh, and they wouldn't build a steel mill that was that had more than 100 employees. Interesting. Uh, and. and, and then they'd they'd build another one uh, someplace else so that they'd have this maximum ability in order to communicate effectively with each other. Yeah, Uh, I I don't know how Apple has managed to do what they've done. I think they may have hit a point now. We shall see. Maybe they'll come up with a new blockbuster product.
0: It's hard to find new areas to innovate. There do seem to be plateaus. Um, That's what's so amazing about The Grateful Dead, even on a musical level. They have a certain number of songs in their repertoire. Yes. And granted, it's a lot of them. Over 400. Right. Yep. But they never really played them the same way twice, which is a kind of ongoing innovation. Yes, absolutely.
3: It, it goes back to that improvisation. Uh, it goes back to where are we now and what are we feeling right now? Let's, let's reflect what we're feeling and what the mm-hmm. audience is giving us in terms of energy feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those sorts of things.
0: Right. And the bigger an organization is, the harder it is to be dialed into that feedback. Absolutely. Unless you approach it with a mindset of... Understanding how each of these components relate to one another. And I think the Grateful Dead had a really intuitive, holistic understanding of not only their own musicality, but their business enterprise and the broader community. And that awareness of how all the components fit together really enabled them to achieve some amazing things. And fundamentally, that is related to the kinds of people they were as individuals and as a collective
3: one of the big challenges to any organization whether it's large or small is ego oh yeah at the top mm-hmm. okay and certainly we we've talked about Jerry and what made him special and unique and how he was the catalyst to this remarkable 30 year run and and it's the fact that he was was pretty much egoless at mm-hmm. uh, as seen by those around him and certainly by the audience and when you have a f- fortune 500 company that's run by somebody who is egotistical and believes that they know all the answers mm-hmm. and that they don't have to listen to everybody mm-hmm. else that's a serious dilemma yeah uh I, I think we see that in washington dc right now oh at, yeah at, at an apex you know i've never seen anything like this in my life i hope i never see it again right uh certainly there are those who disagree with that but you know hey that's the way it is well
0: i certainly agree with you Here's to more enlightened business people and enlightened people in general. Very good. All right, kids, you know the drill. DeadToMePod.com, socials at DeadToMePod.
1: Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network, recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes, executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.